0: Hello and welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Deputy Personal Finance Editor Kate Bealey, and joining me in the studio today is Personal Finance writer Emma Agerman, Winterflood analyst Simon Elliott and on the phone we've got Peter Walls, manager of Unicorn Master Trust. So today we're going to be talking about private equity fund Harbourvest's bid for top 100 fund SVG Capital. We'll also be looking at the health of the biotech sector following some dramatic tweets from Hillary Clinton and we're going to be talking about peer-to-peer loans backed by property. But first on to Harbourvest and SVG Capital. And this is the news that Harbourvest has made an unsolicited £1 billion bid for private equity investment trust SVG Capital. Now the fund made the bid last week and it claims it has the support of over 51% of the investment trust shareholders. Now it means that Harbourvest is offering £6.50 per share and that's quite a bit higher than the share price before the bid but certainly lower than it stands today. So, Peter, you have held this trust, haven't you? What have you done in response to the news?
1: Okay, well, I I sold the um, shares uh, in in Unicorn Master Trust on the morning of the bid at six pounds fifty a share. Um, Effectively, uh, they had good support in terms of uh, letters intent, uh, the largest one being Collar Capital, um, and getting them over the line to a position of more than fifty percent on the morning of the bid, uh, I thought was quite important. Mm. Uh, so I took the decision to sell then.
0: Okay. And when when did you originally buy the trust and, and what price?
1: Um, I've been invested in, in uh, SVG Capital on, on a number of occasions, but more rec- most recently, uh, I started buying again back in October 2013. Uh, I think the initial uh, purchase price was £3.97 per share. Uh, Since then, there's been quite a number of tender offers, um, usually a a bit closer to NAV. Um, So I've taken advantage of those tender offers uh, and uh, at times reinvested the proceeds um, into shares in SVG um, at at a discount. So I think my average price is is about £4.30 per share.
0: Okay. I mean, how happy have you been with with how the holdings performed, how the trusts performed?
1: Um, very happy indeed. Uh, you, know, I've been, um, you know, it's been um, a, a fairly uh, good journey. Um, the company ha- have been, you know, quite forthright in, in buying back shares. Um, so it's been an ongoing program of regular uh, buybacks in the market and tender offers. And I think, you know, that's served to uh, uh, accelerate the returns to shareholders.
0: Okay, um, so Simon, what do you what do you think? Do you think this is good value? This deal, this offer?
2: Um, as Peter's already said, it represents quite a significant uh, premium to where the share price was just prior to the bid. I mean, it's up almost a, a pound since then. Um and certainly in terms of the discount to NAV, so it had results out recently to the end of July, um, it represents about a ten or eleven percent discount. So that's tighter than it's traded for for quite some time. So on those grounds you can say, yep, it's it's, you know, pretty attractive bid. It's
0: Mm, OK, and I mean, just how high a bid do you think could be justified if another offer was made?
2: Yeah, and, that, and that's a good point, because actually if you break down what's actually uh, in the SVG portfolio, um, I mean, to start with, there's a fair amount of cash. There's probably about 30% of the NAVs represented by cash, and clearly it would be a bit odd to expect to pay a discount on cash. So when you strip that out, and when you strip out a number of the other items as well that you could almost describe as cash proxies, so in other words, investments where... Um, you know, you'd expect cash to come back within a reasonably uh, tight time period. Then um, we think, that, yeah, and even applying 10% discount on the on the remaining private equity investments, I think you could probably get to about six eight five. So, again, a, a, you know, a premium to the bid that's on the table. That's not to say we, you know, there's definitely going to be uh, a further bid. And, and clearly, SVG Capital, uh, you know, told the market last week um, that they were talking to a number of interested parties Um and it'd be interesting to see how that develops, but there's no guarantee that that will eventually uh, arise in anything.
0: Mm, and I, th- I think you did just mention, but the, the trust has traded on significant discounts now over the long term, hasn't it? Mm. Why? Why do you think that is?
2: Oh gosh, I mean a couple of things. Listed private equity funds have been out of favour of investors for, for quite a number of years. I mean SVG Capital itself. If you go back to uh, 2006, seven before the f- uh, financial crisis. It was one of the, the stars. Of the investment trust sector trading on a premium had a great long-term track record unfortunately um, that uh, disappeared through that 2008-9 period it had a share price fall of almost 90 percent in in 2008 and that was as a result of a large commitment it made to pamira uh, which following the financial crisis it was unable to make and actually had to uh, go down a dilutive fundraising um, since then it's recovered very very strongly since march 2009 but even so i think people remember uh, the history, in addition to which we 've seen a kind of change of its spots it 's gone from being a Pamira um, a feeder fund to a more genuine fund of private equity funds, um, but it 's still been left with a kind of largely institutional shareholder base it 's saying it 's struggled to really build its attraction amongst retail investors and, and wealth investors
0: mm, and P- Peter, what do you think about that? I mean what do you think of the fund's portfolio and how it 's kind of changed over time?
1: Yeah, I would agree with Simon. The great, great financial crisis was a big problem for for this fund and, and many in the peer group, and it's taken a long time to rebuild confidence. I think, um, yeah, I, I don't don't have a problem um, uh, really with the, the portfolio and the way it's changed or the strategy. Uh, you know, initially I looked at it, and you know, there was cash. There was a, a pledge to, to repay some of that cash to shareholders. Uh, there was quite a lot of, of, of investments in enlisted securities such as Hugo Boss at the time. So, uh, you know, for me, it it, it had attractions which weren't just uh, about uh, listed private equity funds.
0: Mm. Okay. And now, Simon, Harvest has pointed to SVG Capital's 604 million uncalled commitments. So, as in saying, it's, it's quite an immature portfolio, which means, you know, that it could take quite a while for investors to see returns. And so they're arguing that that means this deal is good for just for certainty. Would would you kind of agree with that?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a certain truth in that. So Harbourvest have said it will take between 10 and 12 years to see this portfolio kind of roll off or mature. Um, and I, I think that's true. However, there is a range of maturities in the portfolio. So... They've made uh, nine commitments to eight different uh, different, uh, private equity investors. But you've got a couple of those, um, such as uh, one of the Sinven funds, one of the Pamira funds, already 75% invested. You've got two further funds, already 50% invested. You've also got structured products uh, on the balance sheet. And they are very mature as well. And they represent about 20% of the portfolio. So there's a range of different maturities. And so it would be wrong to say that the cash will take 10 to 12 years coming back. That'll probably be the final amounts. But in the interim, you'll see a lot of cash coming back in probably in the next two or three years.
0: So, I mean, what do you think then, Simon, that investors should do? And, and how, how likely is this to go through? Or could we see another deal emerge?
2: Um, So to answer the second question first, um, I I would expect uh, some deal to to happen. I think uh, I'd be very surprised if this all disappears. So I think really investors are left with three broad choices. They can uh, either accept the 650 bid uh, from Harbush, which is undoubtedly a good bid. Um, They can sit on their hands uh, in the hope that uh, another bid arises or maybe possibly bids. And I think if we see more than one further bid, that's when it would really start to get interesting.
0: And how likely do you think that
2: is? It's difficult to say. I mean, it, there will be um, private equity specialists who who look at secondary portfolios who will be able to price this up very accurately. They will be very familiar with the, the underlying portfolio. It's a very good quality portfolio um, and they will be able to come to to a price. I think from SVG Capital's point of view, and clear, SVG Capital is clearly courting these people. From SVG Capital's point of view, they were interested in getting more than one because the um, offer on the table from Harvest is a final offer. So, in other words, under the uh, takeover code, they cannot increase that offer within a six-month period. So, in theory, someone could come out with a 655 or a 660p, but if you really want to get some price traction, you need... A couple of bids on the table so i'm sure svg capital will be very busy trying to attract that kind of interest
0: mm, interesting so uh, peter in your experience as, as an investor in this kind of asset class how common is a takeover bid like this have you have you seen it before
2: uh,
1: it's not all that common i mean you know, there are a lot of complexities with you know taking on a, a an existing portfolio um obviously um three i took a tilt at electra in 1999 Uh, They were eventually rebuffed, actually, with a full and final offer on the table, which uh, Electra managed to see them off on that one. And, of course, we've seen uh, a change of spots at Electra more recently with the, uh, I suppose, backdoor um, takeover by Sherborne.
0: Interesting. And, I mean, discounts across this sector have been wide for a while, haven't they? Why, Why is that, do you think?
1: well again you know after effects of, of the great financial uh, uh, crisis um and and perhaps a, a little bit of um you know distrust uh about the sector you know there, there was a lot of overcommitment um going into the crash um and uh, that took a lot of time to work out so we had quite a number of uh rescue rights issues in in the sector um, we had uh, a number of funds going into into realisation mode um, because of their over-commitment. So Candover continues in that vein today. Um, and, and I think it's taken quite a long time to, to, for Trust to rebuild. Discounts quite recently uh, actually got out uh, post-Brexit. They got out to 30% plus in some of these funds. It mm. you know, didn't reflect uh, the currency benefit for those with overseas exposure. So was that um, an
0: opportunity for you then, a buying opportunity?
1: Well, I think so, yes. Um, you know, I certainly added to a, a number of names uh, in in the sector at that time.
0: And because which other ones do you hold? I know you have Standard Life, Private Equity in your top 10, don't you?
1: Yeah, I, uh, I think round about um, just over a, a, a fifth of the portfolio would have been invested in listed private equity funds, um, uh, ahead of this bid. So, you know, I've got a, a bit of a cornucopia, I think, of, of these funds. So in addition to the Standard Life Fund, uh, I've got Pantheon, Harbour Vest, Apex, uh, Aberdeen Private Equity, F&C, ICG, still got some Electra, and I suppose, I suppose I I'd include Better Capital in that, which is a, a, another decent purchase.
0: So, you're obviously quite a fan of this sector generally then?
1: Uh, well, <laughs> it would certainly be the case. And, you know, I, I'm sure we've discussed in the past how I quite like discounts to, to NAV. Uh, I quite like uh, looking at areas that are perhaps out of favour with, with, with other investors. Um, and, you know, I'm very encouraged to see some, some very, very solid uh, earnings growth coming through with the underlying portfolios of, of any of these trusts.
0: Okay. Now, Simon, I know that you have said in maybe a recent analyst note that maybe there's a bit of an oversupply of trusts in this sector. Tell me a bit about that. What's your view on the sector generally right now?
2: Um, Our view on the sector is not um, terribly far removed from from Peter's, to be honest. So um, we've been attracted to it because of the value opportunities, i.e. the large discounts that many of the names have traded on, saying that I think you have got to be quite discerning. Um, There are some funds that are better than others, but I think that the bottom line is that... We haven't seen uh, sufficient demand to to justify the amount of supply of paper that exists in this area, And I think intuitively it makes sense because private equity is a higher risk, lower yielding asset class in the main. And that's clearly contrary to what the market or what investors have wanted over the last few years. So we have seen um, a significant amount of corporate activity, uh, not just takeover bids, but in terms of tender offers, buybacks, um, funds electing to go into managed wind down. And I think our expectation is we'll see more of that. Um, I think the real challenge for the listed private equity sector is to remain relevant. And and talking to another uh, private equity manager, listed private equity manager, just this week, his concern following this SVG capital bid, and his assumption was that the the company will disappear at some stage, is that the listed private equity sector just becomes irrelevant to investors. It just falls off the radar. And he, uh, he's clearly, you know, thinking or talking about his own book, but we would tend to agree. We think that would be a shame because it's a good use of the investment trust sector, the ability to access a more illiquid asset class private equity, which over the longer term should and often does lead to very good returns.
0: Mm, so you think the message then is to investors, you know, don't take your eye off this sector and kind of grab opportunities as they come up?
2: Yeah, very much so. But uh, again, they must really look to do their homework. Um, the, the, the variance in quality of the listed private equity funds is, is quite considerable, so there are, some are frankly more attractive than others.
0: Now we're going to move on to looking at another pretty high-risk sector, and one which is also quite good to access via the closed-end structure, and that's biotech. Now, biotech went on a tremendous rally between 2010 and 2015, but since its frothy July peak last year, things have looked a bit bleak. It's been crashing, and that's partly due to a series of tweets by Hillary Clinton about price gouging in the US. She's angry at drug companies like Valiant and Mylan, the makers of EpiPen, who've been ratcheting up the price of their drugs by hundreds of percent. And that's really been taking a toll on share prices across the board. Let's have a talk about what happened between 2010 and 2015. Simon.
2: So that 2010 to 2015 period um, was a very strong one for biotech. Um, I mean, we do see it, and I think most people would see it as a secular growth story. Um, There are some very good demographic trends that mean uh, biotech companies Uh, really are producing uh, or meeting a real need for society. At the same time, the pharmaceutical companies have um, almost metamorphosized into more uh, distribution-type companies. So it's the biotech companies that are really coming up with drug discovery, and we've seen some uh, incredible breakthroughs in in that period of time, in addition to which you've seen a lot of M&A activity as well. So money has been cheap during that 2010 to fifteen period. Um, And I think as a broader point, um, when people do look for growth, Uh, amongst equities Um, there have been two areas that have really kind of stood out and that's been in the the IT sector and obviously they've done very well during that time but also biotech as well so companies that can really demonstrate some very impressive top-line growth.
0: Okay and um, Peter when did you buy into biotech and and why was it in those years or before?
1: I I have to confess it's probably through um, lack of um, understanding and, and, and not doing enough work that I miss out on quite a bit of the growth in the sector um, in that early period. Um, so I suppose I could say I was lucky enough not to be uh, in, in, the, in the biotech sector during the, 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 the fallout of the last year or so. I did re-enter uh, the sector quite recently um, following effectively a 35% fall in, in, in the NASDAQ, NASDAQ biotech index. Um, so back in in May this year i, I, I bought the uh, biotech growth uh, trust for, for, for my portfolio and why
0: did you choose that one over the other options
1: well I you know it comes from a very good uh, investment house um, with, with, with great experience and, and, and world leading expertise. Um, you know, I, I can't uh, profess to, to, to really have a, a firm grip on, on the outlook. But what attracted me, apart from the fact that we've seen a, a serious pullback uh, in, in, in biotech companies, was that, you know, large-cap biogs were, were average multiple of multiple about 13 times uh, mm-hmm. against the S&P 500 at 17. And, you know, clearly... Uh, I, to be ongoing, significant m activity in the sector, uh, we're continuing to see a very high level of drug uh, approvals uh, and very, very strong sales growth. Uh, and I think, you know, Hillary's gouging comments were perhaps a bit of a sideshow relating to, to areas that, that really aren't that relevant uh, to the biotech specialists in the investment company sector.
0: Yeah, because I mean, there has been a d- distinction. In fact, she has been dis- drawing dis- drawing distinctions recently, hasn't she, between the kind of companies that she was particularly talking about, so Valiant, Milan with EpiPens, for example, these very these older kind of generics companies and new innovative ones, I guess, coming up with genuinely exciting new drugs. I mean, Simon, what what do you think? Do you think her tweet was, um, you know, the real trigger for the sell off? What other things involved?
2: Undoubtedly, the tweet did have an impact on, on share prices and and uh, sentiment towards the sector. But to be fair, it, it had had such a strong run. You could almost expect some kind of pullback at some stage. I mean, so it,
0: was, it was up 400% it, or so, wasn't it? It had been a tremendous performer.
2: So, uh, you know, did it hit the share prices? Yes, it did. But I think there was a feeling that it might be a good time to take some, some profits, some money off the table.
0: Mm. And so what do you think of the, of the closed-end options in this space?
2: So the the two really leading funds are Biotech Growth Trust, as we've already mentioned, and, and Winterflood are the broker to that one, it's worth saying, and uh, International Biotech. Um, and, you know, to take, take a step back, I think the asset class is very interesting. Clearly, it is a higher risk, higher potential return asset class. And I think the idea of paying an active manager to invest on your behalf into a portfolio of biotech stocks for for both those funds we mentioned, I think absolutely makes sense. A big debate uh, across the wider sector, about passive versus active investment, um, you know, why should you pay an active manager fees? Well, for us, I think it's a no-brainer as far as biotech are concerned because clearly it's a highly specialised area of the market. And if you look at like uh, if you look at an operator such as Orbimed, responsible for biotech growth, there they've got ninety professionals looking at this sector. This is all they do. Just look at healthcare um, and the number of doctorates and uh, you know specialists that they have on their books really does give them to a great insight in our opinion into what's going on in that area.
0: And I mean a lot of the the fund managers working in this space that do come from medical backgrounds don't they and and or chemical backgrounds or whatever. They're very bright people. Yeah. Very <laughs> yeah. bright people. I mean as an investor investing in biotech what are you you know what are you getting access to are you betting here on the on the binary outcome of drugs are you getting some companies with stable revenue i think people often think biotech and they think you know a company living or dying on on its kind of one hope is that an inaccurate perception
2: um it's a good question i mean i think um biotechnology is a a bit of a broad church now to be honest i think things moved on so if you look at some of the larger biotech companies the difference between them and and the pharmaceutical companies both in terms of size and reach and profitability it's actually not that great at the lower end of the the sector clearly there are some very um, kind of blue sky companies who have never had any revenue never mind had any profit so they might make tremendous returns but clearly very very risky and very dependent on drug approval, drug discovery, and all the rest of it. So it does vary quite a lot across the uh, across the piece. And it's interesting, for instance, all we made on biotech growth, they've moved towards those larger biotech companies now, um, really echoing the comments that Peter made earlier, that that's where they see the value uh, in the biotech sector at the moment.
0: Mm, interesting. And they have just said, or international, biotech, uh, international Biotechnology has just said, it will be introducing dividends, hasn't it? Um, that, level?
2: That's right. So they made an announcement relatively recently. They said they would look to return 4% of their net assets every year uh, through a dividend. And, and that follows on the heels of a number of other investment trusts. So we had JP Morgan, Global Growth and Income, which uh, Winterflow brokered broker too. And we also had uh, a number of others, I think World Trust Fund and uh, FNC Private Equity do a similar thing, where they also look to effectively manufacture uh, dividends, convert capital into income. Um, It's not uh, uncontroversial in the investment trust world. Some people don't like the idea at all. However, I think the idea is that you're really trying to attract um, a wider, uh, or you're trying to attract different types of investor onto your shareholder base. Um, Those people that really do need yield, but actually would be quite interested in the return profile of something like biotech.
0: Mm, Interesting. So if controversial area, Peter, what do you think about that? Uh,
1: I I think there's some question over, over tax. Uh, in terms of differing uh, tax rates for income and, and capital gains, but uh, if you're holding within a tax wrapper, an ISA or a, a SIP or similar pension product, then I, I, I don't have a problem with it. It, it. It's tax neutral from that point of view. Does, um, it,
0: does it change uh, the, yeah. kind of whether you would invest or not?
1: Um, not me personally, uh, for the fund. Um, you know, Clearly, I'm looking for capital growth, uh, that's part of my objective. Um, but I could imagine that some people may look more favourably upon it, particularly as the discount does, does look quite attractive. Mm. Um, and you know, my sort of feelings about the wider sector, and you know, I mean, again, like equity, the investment trust structure is ideal for this sort of long-term uh, investment. And you know, the, the Allbritton Chats, you know, they, they are, as Simon said, very very experienced. I wouldn't, you know, be able to tell you. Um, how, how one would go about thinking about the future uh, for a company like Gilead, which I think trades on seven and a half times multiple. Um, you know, I, we've got to leave these things to the professionals. And what I would say is that the portfolio approach is, is very appropriate here because you know, you've got volatility in the index itself, but individual stock uh, volatility is quite incredible. So um, Medivation was taken out by Pfizer, um, Basically, if you look at Medivation's price back in February this year, the takeout price was three times that, that level. So, you know, it's huge volatility uh, and this is one area where you've definitely got to leave it to the experts. Mm,
0: if, if you didn't hold any already, would you be buying in now?
1: I, I think I would and um, I think, uh, you know, like all of these um, sort of higher risk, higher return areas, um, you know, you, you'll have a, a modest exposure.
0: To the sector, mm, okay, interesting. And I should flag that we've actually got a special podcast about biotech uh, live on the website now, which you can download from all the usual places. Um, so finally, we're going to move on to talk about something very different, and that is P is P loans, peer to peer loans related to property. So if you're seeking high investment returns, this is one place to look, although it does come with much higher risk. Now Emma's been having a look at peer to peer loans focused on or backed by property, so.
3: Emma, how do these P2P loans differ from, from others? Um, well, as you say, Kate, the main way they do is is their focus on the property market. So peer-to-peer lending traditionally has been a sort of an alternative to banks, where providers would bring lenders and borrowers directly, often on their websites. And most of these loans would be to individuals or to a variety of businesses. But with these new kind of providers, um, they're just focused on property. So looking at property companies or sole traders and um, the loans they offer are secured against property. And these could be for things such as property development, either in the residential or commercial property space.
0: OK, so what's the appeal of this kind?
3: Well, it's mostly to do with much higher interest rates that are available. I mean, the providers we looked at were starting from 4% up. Um, and considering you know, the low rate world that we're living in, this could be definitely attractive for income seekers. Um, but there's also the perceived safety of a loan being secured by property, which means that if the bor- borrower defaults, um, providers are able to step in and sell the property that the loan was secured against to recoup some of the lenders' money.
0: Okay, so just how kind of risky would you say this was?
3: Well, you know, this is the thing, there's no such thing as a free lunch. So, um with with the higher interest rates come much um, you know, sort of higher risk profile. And there are a number of risks for investors to consider. I mean the main one um borrower defaults, which is, is applicable to, to all sort of lending um activities. But in this area, um there's idea that actually the property could cushion um lenders from borrowers defaulting. But you know, you need to be aware that you know, if there was a downturn and um, the increase of borrowers default, um, that could affect the, the interest rate that lenders would get back. And the fact that property is an illiquid a- asset would also mean that um, there could be issues to do with, you know, the amount of the value that um, providers are able to recoup on um, selling the property. You know, if they could actually get less back from what what they paid for it, and that meant would also hit returns um issue with lender liquidity. You know, these providers are, are promising that um lenders will be able to be able to sell on um their loans, but perhaps that's going to not be the case again if if there was a shock to the property market or significant downturn. Um, and there's also particular issues related to this area. So peer-to-peer lending, still very new um you know business and the investment proposition. Um, and many of these companies that focus specifically on property have only really been around for the last two, three years. So that's a very short track record and, um, you know, they haven't really been tested. So we don't quite know how they're going to behave um, in if there was to be a downturn. Um, the other thing to consider is the fact that peer-to-peer lending is not protected by the financial services compensation scheme. So that means that if your provider were to fail, you wouldn't receive the same level of protection that you would do if you were, say, invested in a fund um, where you'd receive um, investment protection of up to £50,000. So this is an area that's not protected by, by the FSCS. But providers say that, you know, they do segregate clients money from the company money and so you know in theory even if they were to go bust you would still your money would still be protected but because there isn't this additional protection of fscs it's definitely something to be more cautious about and you know to consider how much you know perhaps put not just a small amount of of money that you would do in an area that is protected
0: So so quite a lot of risks to consider there then. And um, yeah, yeah, there's more analysis of that in this week's magazine as more analysis of private equity, biotech and everything that we've discussed today. Um, That's all we've got time for this week. So it just remains for me to thank Emma, Simon and Peter and wish you a good weekend.